There's a few more attachments uh, to this one, and we'll be referring to them as we go through the text here. <coughs> um, we uh, have covered um, the history of languages and writing and putting together the first uh, Old Testament scriptures that were written by Moses. And then uh, we talked about inspiration last week. Um, and uh, so this week we're going to talk about the uh, how the text of the Bible was preserved and then brought together into the Bible that we know today, the English Bible, and um, the different versions of the English Bible and why they exist. So the text of the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites. But in the millennium before Christ, Aramaic, a language related to Hebrew, became the language of international commerce and communication throughout the Middle East. And so parts of the book of Ezra and the book of Daniel were written in Aramaic. You may recall in the part one where we talked about the uh, Semitic languages, descendants of Shem, who became, Abraham was a descendant of Shem, and then uh, the uh, nation of Israel was descended from Abraham. Um, so the descendants of Shem spoke various dialects of what became Semitic languages. And you may recall I compared <coughs> excuse me, the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom, with the Arabic word for peace, which is salam, and the similarities. Um, another good example would be uh, the name Abraham. The Hebrew name is Avraham, and the Arabic word is Ibrahim. Just to be different, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, Aramaic was another Semitic language, another variation of the Semitic group of languages. Uh, there are no original written by Abraham or Samuel or uh, any of the other Old Testament original authors. None of those exist today. All we have is copies. All of the ancient existing documents we have are uh, copies that have been carefully and meticulously made by scribes. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the most ancient Old Testament copies we had were of the Masoretic text written between AD 500 and 900. The Masoretes added a series of markings to the Hebrew alphabet in order to preserve the vowel sounds and therefore to preserve the proper pronunciation of the ancient Hebrew language. You may recall uh, we talked about the Tetragrammaton Let's look at page four of our uh, handouts. 
This is a printout from uh, Wikipedia, an online encyclopedia, if you will. And in the upper right-hand corner, you can see three rows of what looked like ancient text there. Four letters in each row. That's the tetragrammaton, which means consisting of four letters. And these are written in the first one at the top, the four letters. By the way, you read these from right to left, not from left to right. Um, beg your pardon? <laughs> but, uh, the top row is uh, Paleo-Hebrew, uh, written between the 10th century before Christ up to 135 B.C. The middle uh, four letters are Old... Let me see. Yes, Old Aramaic, written between the 10th century and the 4th century A.D. 10th century B.C. and the 4th century A.D. And the square Hebrew on the bottom is what they used to write in Hebrew from the 3rd century B.C. up until the present day. And as I mentioned, uh, I guess it was during part one, that YHWH was the word for God, which religiously observant Jews were forbidden to pronounce. And so when they would read the Torah and come across what we have transliterated into YHWH, when they came across the word in their Torah, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Okay, they substituted another word, and they would—they just didn't dare say the name because the name was so holy that, being sinners, they weren't allowed to use the real word of God. So we'll go back to uh, page one here. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict written by Josh McDowell and he quotes a biblical scholar named Gleason Archer. Even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known which was at the time, uh, A.D. 980, uh, they proved to be word-for-word word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consists chiefly of obvious slips in the pen and variations in spelling. They do not affect the message of Revelation in the slightest. And the next person I quote, F.F. F. Bruce, was on the translating team of the New or This is the New Living Translation. Uh, but he has participated in many translating teams um, on 
like the New American Standard or possibly the NIV, something like that. Very famous uh, uh, scholar of Old Testament and New Testament, you know, the Hebrew and the Greek texts, and so he makes translations and criticisms and, and uh, examines the work of other translators to, see, you know, see its accuracy and all of that. Very well-respected man who passed away in 1990. Uh, but a, a great biblical scholar with wonderful uh, uh, pedigree, if you will. Anyway, he states that the consonantal text of the Hebrew Bible, which the Masoretes edited, had been handed down to their time with conspicuous fidelity over a period of nearly a thousand years. And then I added to his statement, for th because... We, the Masoretes uh, completed their work in 980, and here we are in 2015. So we've got another thousand years since then. So I added, um, for thousands of years, Jewish rabbis have guarded the transmission of the Hebrew text with minute precautions. Now we're going to look at where the uh, various New Testament books first appeared. Matthew, James, and probably Hebrews uh, first appeared, were written, if you will, in Palestine. And uh, John, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, that's the Gospel John, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude and Revelation were all written in Asia Minor, which covered a large uh, area on the northern shore of the uh, Mediterranean Sea there, where Greece is today and a number of other countries. Uh, in what is ancient Greece proper, Romans, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians were written. And Titus was written in Crete. And Mark, Acts, Colossians, Philemon, and probably Luke were all written in Rome. Now, these are some amazing statistics. I wish uh, Pastor Ritchie were here. He, he, we were discussing this this morning. Uh, and he, he's looking for some data on a, something he's going to present on his radio show. And this would be valuable information to him, so he's probably going to get a copy of all my stuff here. Anyway, we have approximately 5,686 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. As well, there are another 19,284 ancient New Testament manuscripts that are written in other languages, such as the Latin Vulgate, Ethiopic, Slavic, Armenian, Syriac, Peshetta, Boharic, Old Latin, and others. No other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers and attestation. In comparison, Homer's Iliad is in second place with only 643 ancient manuscripts that still survive. The importance of the sheer numbers of manuscript copies 
cannot be overstated. The books of the New Testament were written in the latter part of the first century. The earliest extant manuscripts are of the fourth century, roughly 250 to 300 years after Christ, after the first ones were written, uh, original manuscripts. Both the authenticity and the general integrity and accuracy of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, um, let us look at page five of our uh, handouts here. And you will see what is a printout from Amazon.com of the Biblica, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which is the Hebrew Bible, which is the standard text. It's written in Hebrew. And it is the standard text today that is used by Bible scholars to write um, a new translation of the Bible, of the Old Testament. This is their standard book. It's available to you online. You can, you can, they're common. The point being that the ancient Hebrew Bible is so well, uh, preserved in ancient manuscripts and it is rare that we get new discoveries of uh, new manuscripts but they have always whenever they've been found agreed with the text that already exists there have been no manuscripts that refuted what we have record of this is essentially cast in concrete ancient Hebrew Old Testament, which is why they use this one book. Okay? And it happens that we have another book on the New Testament, which is page 6, and it is called the Novum Testamentum Grise Nestle Allen. It is the Greek 28th edition of the Nestle Allen Novum Testamentum Grise, and it is the standard scholarly edition of the Greek New Testament used by scholars, Bible translators, professors, students, and pastors worldwide. Okay, same thing here. This is so well documented with the, what did I say, 643 ancient Greek, no, 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 uh, 5,686 ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts and the 19,284 ancient manuscripts and other languages that we have. It is rare that we find new Greek New Testament ancient manuscripts. We don't come upon them very often anymore. And they all agree, with the exception of the, the slip of the pen. I mean, they're as human as you and I are. And they make mistakes. But, you know, like if I didn't have an eraser back then, I probably scratched it out and wrote something next to it. You would think that they did that, but they actually had a parody plan where, you know, they wrote in rows and columns of letters, and each letter had a numerical value. So you could count the number value of all the letters in a vertical column, 
and let's say the their value was 95. And the next column over, you count that one up, and it's 92. And the next one, and then they could add up all of those numbers. And so at the end, they could say this page should have a numerical value of 4,311 or something like that, you know. But they had, that was called a parity check. And so there were methods of retaining the accuracy over millennia. And so we're pretty comfortable with the fact that what we have in our New Testament and Old Testament today are accurate uh, representations of the original manuscripts translated into English. So finally, we arrive at the English language translations of the Old Testament and New Testament that, gather, that together we call the Bible. But why do we have so many different translations if we have cast in concrete the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament? Shouldn't any new translation made from them always come out identical to the previous translations? You'd think so. Well, the English that we speak today is quite different than the English that was spoken in 1611 at the time of the publishing of the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, it has also changed some since the 1800s and is constantly changing as new words enter our dialogue and we use older words with new meaning. Uh, the word bonnet. What pops into your mind? A hat, right? British call it the hood of their car is a bonnet. How about the word bling? Huh? B-L-I-N-G, bling. It's about a 20-year-old word, believe it or not. That's all, as far as I know. Uh, some people may have used it as a sound effect or something like that. But the hip-hop culture started calling fancy jewelry, uh, $1,000 suits and dresses and, you know, just the most expensive, lavish clothing that you wear. They call it bling-bling. And so over 20 years, it's already changed to just bling. So that someday... Jezebel is going to be written about in the Old Testament is covered in bling. I just know it, you know. <laughs> so uh, there are two main philosophies that guide English translations of the Bible. The first is what is known as formal or word-for-word -word translations. And the other is thought-for-thought -thought translations. Word-for-word -word translations are excellent tools for Bible study, but can be difficult to read and understand. Word exegesis is defined as to extract the meaning from the written word. And proper exegesis of a word-for-word -word translation can be difficult and time-consuming for the Bible student and requires understanding the context of the sentence, the paragraph, the chapter, and the specific book. Also necessary is an understanding about who the author is and to whom he was writing the particular book. 
You must also have a proper understanding of the time in history, the cultures of the people to whom and about whom the books were written, and it's also beneficial to be able to recognize literary genres such as the metaphor or hyperbole, poetry, parables, and other genres. A well-written thought-for-thought translation can eliminate the need for much of the exegetical effort. Also, they, also they are usually intended for and better for reading aloud. Extracting the meaning, the, the intended meaning of the original author, what he meant to say to the original reader is the primary function of exegesis. Okay? And having a well-written thought-for-thought translation is a big help. takes a lot of the effort out of it um, because that... Once you understand what the author meant to say to the original reader, then the pastor is able to give us daily application, like Pastor Ron does so well, in uh, putting, uh, you know, applying what we read in Scripture to our daily life. So it is very important to understand what is really going on in the Bible. And to help you understand what I'm getting at here, there are two more pages of handouts in the back. Um, The first one is on page 7, and that is uh, Numbers 34, verse 5, as it is written in the King James Version. And it actually goes... Starts at Numbers 34.1, up above, 34.1 through 5. And I'm going to read them. This is King James English for you now. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coasts thereof. Then your south quarter shall be from the wilderness of Zin along by the coast of Edom, and your south border shall be the outmost coast of the Salt Sea eastward. And your border shall turn from the south to the ascent of Akrabim and pass on to Zin. And the going forth thereof shall be from the south to Kadesh Barnea and shall go on to Hazaradar, and pass to pass on to Asmon, and the border shall fetch a compass from Asmon unto the river of Egypt, and the goings out of it shall be at the sea. What? <laughs> so we have that King James English there, and we have Numbers thirty-four five written in the Masoretic text, right under the, the, the last verse there, Numbers 34 or 5, and that reads from right to left. And you see, let's take, see where the 3 in, in the big 34 or 5 is on the right-hand side of the Masoretic text. Okay, the first character in the, the line to the left of the 3 
looks almost like a reverse lowercase r. Below it are two dots, looks like a colon. And the next letter over looks like a T underneath, next to the colon there, but with, or it looks like a dash with a water balloon hanging down underneath it. And then to the left of that is another dash, okay, with no water balloon. Those markings, those little markings along the bottom, are the vowel sounds. That was the work of the Masoretes between A.D. 500 and A.D. 980, was to come up with a system of vowel sounds to add to the consonants in the original Hebrew language. So the vowel sounds are the A, E, I, O, and U that we're familiar with, uh, just to give them the proper way to pronounce words. Now, just a reminder here that for a thousand years or more, they could not pronounce Yahweh. They had to say Adonai. Well, not even the Jews know for sure the proper pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. That that was lost because they didn't use the vowel sounds. So it could be Yoi or uh, Yiwa or, I mean, just pick your vowels and put one in the first syllable and a different one in the last syllable. Or the same one. It could be Yiwi. Uh, and I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just trying to point out the fact that they don't know the real pronunciation of the word for God when Moses was alive and wrote God in the first place. The Hebrews don't know their own pronunciation of that word. And that's just a fascinating piece of history to me. So, uh, let's see. The second is uh, Numbers 34.5. Was that hard reading for you in King James Version? I mean, you get an idea of what's going on, but um, it's very difficult for me to read it. And that's the way they spoke in 1611. Now, this is the New Living Translation on page 8. Same thing, same verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give these instructions to the Israelites. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your special possession, these will be the boundaries. The southern portion of your country will extend from the wilderness of Zin along the edge of Edom. The southern boundary will begin on the east at the Dead Sea. It will then run south past Scorpion Pass in the direction of Zin. Its southernmost point will be Kadesh Barnea, from which it will go to Hazar Adar and on to Asmon. From Asmon, the boundary will turn toward the brook of Egypt and end at the Mediterranean Sea. That's a modern translation in the same kind of English that you and I speak. And you'll notice that the same text is all listed down below. The Hebrew writing, the Strong's numbers, and the English in the NASB, New American Standard, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, I 
I don't know. You'll notice there's a question mark by English KJV also. And I don't know what that is there for. I suppose if you click on it online, it'll tell you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, notice both pages show the same Hebrew Masoretic text above the broken down verse. And below, you will see the Greek... Oh, I forgot to mention that. Down below on pages 7 and 8 is the uh, Septuagint. The LXX Roman numeral is 70. And then Septuagint. And below that, you'll see 34, 5, and the Greek uh, translation into the Septuagint of the Hebrew. So, word-for-word -word translations that are available to us today include the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard Version, and several others. Thought-for-thought -thought translations include the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the Good News Bible, and a few others. Pardon me. And there's one Bible, I'm not even sure if they still publish it, if you can buy a new one or not, called the Living Bible. As far as I know, it is the only paraphrased Bible that was ever written. be a good place for questions if anybody has questions. I don't know. I, I've not read it I, and I don't know is there anybody that's familiar with the word Please. it's a paraphrase is it okay You know, I've, I've seen the, the, the churches that have the KJV only on the front door. I've never attended a church that has that. Not, I, it's not that I've avoided them. I respect them if that's what they want to use. What they may or may not understand is that in 1611, when the King James was written, um, they didn't have all of those ancient texts, manuscripts available that we have today, that there's been so much archaeology. Archaeology didn't even exist before roughly 1850 or so. I think there were some people who were with uh, uh, Bona Napoleon Bonaparte when he went to Egypt, who were interested in learning about Egyptian history, but they didn't, no one had yet discovered the uh, Rosetta Stone, there were no scientists, so they were fascinated by the, the uh, architecture there and all of that, but they didn't understand it. So, I mean, it started minds thinking about these civilizations that lived 
4,000 years ago and all of that. But archaeology, the science of archaeology, didn't really begin until 1850 or so. Point of mentioning that, how is that since 1611, when the King James came out, there have been many discoveries. And chief among those is, of course, the uh, uh, community at Qumran along the, the uh, Dead Sea, where they found those uh, Old, Old Testament scrolls. But, you know, when they would uh, dig up um, mounds in Israel and in Ephesus, around the Mediterranean where the New Testament church had spread, they discovered all of these ancient Greek manuscripts. And so they're now in museums and libraries and universities and things like that. And we have so much more that the uh, author of the King James, the authors of the King James did not have, that one of their primary sources for the King James happened to be the Latin Vulgate, which is the basically was the Catholic Church Bible. And scholars say it is riddled with translation errors. So the King James Bible has some words that should be other words. Okay. When when properly um, researched with uh, those two Bibles, the uh, the Old Testament and the the Hebrew and the Greek and all that that they didn't have in King James day. So to me, they're putting faith in in an inaccurate translation, which may lead them to erroneous theology, and I don't know because I've never attended one of those, but I'm, I'm just cautious of it, you know. There, there are, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, Jesus' final farewell here, and you will understand the importance, I hope, of getting, doing proper exegesis on the Bible when you're reading it. Okay. As a preface to the study of a portion of Jesus' final farewell, I want to emphasize the fact that I am not negating the verse-by-verse applications studies that you have heard preached and taught, I will say, about in the Gospel of John and in these chapters that I'm going to cover. Um, I'm not negating any of past preaching and teaching and studying of John. I'm not going to show you something that is not obvious, nor is it something new that has never been taught before. What I'm going to show you is not something that is taught by a religious cult either. In fact, some of you, or all of you for that matter, may well be aware aware of this interesting little tidbit that I discovered for myself while studying some uh, of the denominational differences in Christian church teachings. It is, in fact, a new understanding for me that I discovered in the last four or five years and that I found to be pretty exciting. It was a most revealing discovery for me 
that helped me to understand what was going through Jesus' mind at this time. Have I tantalized you at all? I'm trying to trying to make it interesting anyway. It's often necessary to consider all of the texts surrounding one verse in order to get the real meaning of that verse. Many groups isolate one verse from the rest of the text and use it as what is called a proof text to support their argument. An example can be found in John 15:60, part of which is used by one group to support the ideas of election and predestination. And I'm not here to argue election predestination. I'm here to show you how to understand context. Okay? So I, I, I'm, I want to say that up front. I'm not trying to start an argument of whether election and predestination and all that stuff is proper theology. That's for another day, but not here. In John 15:16, Jesus said this. He said, You didn't choose me, I chose you. And then these this group ignores the rest of the verse and everything that is going on around the verse as we shall see. The rest of the verse says, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Now, um, I, how many have red letter Bibles that you brought with you? Okay, um, good. I have a little bit of, of what I want to present to you on that's uh, out of a red letter New, New Living Translation. It's on page 9. And it's almost all red letter because this is out of the middle of Jesus' final farewell. Without reading any of it, when did Jesus' final farewell take place? And does anybody know? Where did it take place? Does anybody know? This is the secret which I want to help reveal to you. It, because most folks understand that it started in the upper room after the Last Supper. Let us go to chapter... This is John now, chapter 13. And so I'm going to start at verse uh, 25 where John says, So that disciple, disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? That's the one who's going to betray him. Jesus responded, is the one to whom I give the bread and dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for food and, or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. Now, beginning at verse 31, you'll see an awful lot of red letters. Verse 31 is the beginning 
of Jesus' final farewell. Where are they? They're in the upper room. They have just finished the Last Supper, and they're still sitting around the table. Okay? As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, <coughs> The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I'm going to skip down here to... Let's see. 14. Oh, about... Uh, well, there's some important uh, famous verses in here, so I'm going to skip around a little bit. Uh, of course, 14 begins with, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I am going to... I, would I, if this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Then in verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. They're still sitting around the table at the Last Supper. Jesus says, I have been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. So uh, then let's skip down to verse 27, another well-known verse here. I am leaving you, this is John 14, verse 27. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. And then at verse 30, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. There all of a sudden is an urgency in Jesus' voice. Can you hear it in what he's saying? Okay. You know what's happening here. He's thinking about what's coming up for him in just a few hours. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Now, in the New Living Translation, New Living Translation Jesus says, Come, let's be going. This is the first clue I'm giving you, okay? What happens now is Jesus and the disciples get up from the table, go out of the upper room, out of the building, down onto the streets of Jerusalem. If you've ever gone on a hike with friends, you don't keep your mouth shut the whole time you're gone. You're always talking. If you're walking through Disneyland with your friends, you're talking to them. If you're in the grocery store with your Husband or wife, you're always talking when you're walking. It's human nature to do that. So now imagine that Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, making his way towards the Mount of Olives. Okay? And everything that he says from now on 
is while they are walking. Uh, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already, you have already been pruned. Now if you look at that page 9 that I gave you, you'll see it's the red letter edition. But every so often I've thrown in next to the word you in black writing so you know Jesus didn't say it. It's my writing. Jesus implied here he's talking to his disciples while he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem and his conversation is being directed at them and to nobody else because nobody else can hear him. It's J and John, this is John recording all of this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's in this chapter he's talking about them being fruitful. So I'm going to read to you from that uh, page 9 starting at verse 15 1. I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You eleven have already been pruned and purified by my message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you, eleven, cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Can you get an idea of what verse or chapter 15 is about? Being fruitful. These eleven guys are going to do something after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. It happens on, in Acts chapter 2. The beginning of the Christian church. And so Jesus is telling them that they are the ones who are going to be responsible for the building of this New Testament church. The fruit is going to be the new souls that are saved. Okay, So Jesus is talking to these guys while they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And he says... I have loved you, eleven, even as my... I'm in verse 9 now. Even as the Father has loved me, remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I have told you, eleven, these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you, eleven. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You, eleven, are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you, eleven, are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You eleven didn't choose me. I chose you eleven. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my commandment. Love one another. So that verse 16, 
the one that was being used as an argument for predestination and uh, election. Think about this. These guys have been with him for the last three years. I believe what he is saying to them when he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He's just talked about fruitfulness and his love for them and all of that. And I think he's saying, remember three years ago when I said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's what he means. And so, I've got to, since this page does not go all the way down to where their stroll ends, I've got to refer to uh, my notes here. Uh, I, think, I think it may be mentioned... Let's see, Jesus' final, final farewell conversation with his disciples actually continues down to the end of chapter 17. No, let's see. Oh, I know where it is. Chapter 18. Verse 1, now uh, I'm going to go to 17.25 and Jesus, they're still walking, believe it or not, at the end of 17. And Jesus is saying, he's praying for his uh, disciples. So, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. 18 verse 1 says, After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Final farewell is over. The walk through Jerusalem is over. And now he goes to the Mount of Olives. That was... My whole, I mean, they tell you when they, when they leave the room and when they get across the Kidron Valley and what, they were, what Jesus was saying for this whole trip while they were walking down to, uh, you know, what's going to happen next to our Lord. So that was, the, to me, it was this fascinating revelation that no one had ever shown me or revealed to me before in well in the last four or five years I figured it out so in maybe 31 32 years before that no one had ever taught me that this is what was going on and this is what is essential in understanding the context of the authors so you know what's going on and you can understand that Jesus wasn't teaching theology about predestination and election. That was, had nothing to do with it. He wasn't, you know, he, he would usually start his theology les lessons with, the kingdom of heaven is like, yada, yada. 
you know, and then he would teach them something about love and forgiveness and what, you know, God, what pleases God and what doesn't please God and all of that. So this was not a theology lesson for them. What he was really doing in all of this, and it's well worth reading in one sitting the entire final farewell, what he's really doing here is preparing his disciples spiritually, mentally, psychologically, emotionally to prepare for what's going to happen to them. He mentions... They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So this is all, and the, the most, it's Jesus. So he, he's not even worried about himself. He knows in a few hours Judas is going to betray him, that they're going to, beat him to a bloody mass of tissue, and then they're going to hang him on a cross. He knows it's going to happen. He's not even thinking about himself, though. He's thinking about his disciples and the fact that they're going to have to endure the same thing. I think there's, John is the only disciple who was not tortured and, and uh either crucified or burned at the stake or something like that. John died. I think he died on Patmos, but I'm not sure about that. He was in jail. He had been persecuted. He'd probably been beaten, just like all the others. But here's Jesus, who's going to be crucified for us. And he's thinking about what those guys are going to have to go through. It's just it's a stunning thing for me to learn. Just And I... I it was exciting for me to have an opportunity to share it with you. So I thank you for your patience.